Welcome back. You're listening to Inside Asia, and I'm your host, Steve Stein. Something special happened in recent days, and in a slight departure from our regular format, I bring you a discussion held with one of the great environmental thinkers of our time, Hunter Lovins. It was on the occasion of one of our regularly scheduled gatherings of the Asia Corporate Leadership Council that Hunter joined us virtually from her ranch in Colorado. The Council is a partnership between the Conference Board, the Center for Creative Leadership, and Inside Asia, and is comprised of a select group of senior-most leaders of Western multinationals, Asian conglomerates, and family offices. Our mission? To define and promote best practice and corporate purpose. Hunter is the latest in a string of featured speakers who define what good looks like. And with permission from our members, I bring you our conversation. Hunter, welcome to the Asia Corporate Leadership Council. Thank you for taking time out to speak with us. Um, and I was just hoping you could maybe open with a few initial comments and thoughts, and then uh, we'll just we'll just get into a conversation as we have. Steve, thanks so much. We live in an amazing time. In in many ways, we we think of this as a terrible time, and indeed, the the human losses are purely a tragedy. At the same time, this is a wake-up call for humanity. The pandemic is a small crisis compared to the crises that are facing us. We face at least a triple crisis of climate, loss of biodiversity, and structural inequality. Solving these going to be much harder and going to demand much greater attention than dealing with the pandemic. That said, this planetary emergency that we are in is also a time of unprecedented opportunity. I would highly recommend that you read a recent paper by a colleague of mine, a man named Tony Seba, S-E-B-A, and James Arbib, called Rethinking Humanity. What they have done is to take a look at the, the span of human history and the role that technology plays in shifting economies, cultures, civilizations, They argue that whenever there is a technological innovation that drops by tenfold the cost of doing whatever it is that you wanted to do in five core economic sectors, energy, transportation, food, communications, and materials, that the incumbent system tends to collapse and a new system arises based on what they call a new operating system for understanding how to capitalize on this new technological innovation, how to make money on it. And they are saying that in the next decade, we are in the midst of one of these collapses, drop by tenfold in cost, in how we do each of these five areas. So not just one, but all of them. And that this will wholly 
transform how we run society, who the winners and losers are, how we make money, and unleash either a new dark age or a time of unprecedented prosperity and opportunity. Because what they're, what they're tracking with these technologies essentially takes to almost zero the cost of meeting our needs for energy. It is now everywhere on the planet cheaper to meet our needs through renewable energy than through any of the fossils. And as a result, last April, oil prices went negative. This was not thought to be possible. It happened. Yes, the pandemic played a role in it, but the, the fact that we, we can now meet our energy needs from the sun, the wind, the other renewables, means that this transformation is going to be durable. Transport, the electric vehicle and the autonomous electric vehicle will drop by tenfold the cost of getting from here to there. And so why on earth would you pay to buy, fuel, maintain, and insure a private vehicle if you can just whistle one of these things up on your smartphone and pay tenfold less? If this is true, it will transform how we design cities. Almost all major cities are designed around automobiles, not people. Materials. Manufacturing at the atomic level, at the nano level, the, the whole concept of the circular economy, they argue, stands to similarly transform how we make stuff. Food lab-grown protein, they say, will transform the industrial agricultural sector. Now, Tony and I argue a bit over this because just as renewable energy is half the solution to the climate crisis, the other half of the solution is regenerative agriculture, mimicking the way that great grazing herds took carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil through grasses, through the photosynthesis and the healthy soil, the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil that mineralize the carbon that the, the grasses take out of the air and then slough off the roots as polysaccharides, sugars, to feed the microbiological community. If we were to practice regenerative agriculture on the world's grasslands, now that's a big if, but doing this is profitable. Over 30 years time, we get back to concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of 280 parts per million, the pre-industrial level. So if we stop emitting carbon because we're using renewable energy and we implement regenerative agriculture, we solve the climate crisis at a profit. Now this has profound implications for a number of industries, positive and negative, but you now have this race to zero of countries, Portugal recently announced, what was it? 1.6 cents per kilowatt hour for utility scale solar Abu Dhabi turned around and said 1.3 cents, 1.37. Portugal came back and said 1.31. 1. 
General Electric walked away from a perfectly functioning natural gas plant out in California, had 20 years life left on it because they said it can't compete with solar. China has just announced that it will be carbon neutral by 2060. It'll be much sooner than that. And in the first three months of 2018, they brought on the equivalent of 10 nuclear power plants worth of solar three months time, try bringing a nuke on and anything like that. New nukes will cost you around 20 cents a kilowatt hour or higher. A new coal plant is at least 10 cents a kilowatt hour or higher, which is why India recently canceled 14 big coal plants. They said it can't compete with solar. So we are in this profound transformation. And, it, and again, it, it offers enormous opportunities for countries, companies, communities to do the right thing, but also to do it in a way that we begin to build a truly regenerative economy. And perhaps more importantly, an economy that works for everyone. One of the bad things about the pandemic, the trillionaires in the world have prospered. The bottom part of humanity is struggling terribly. We have the wealth to address that. If we fail to address it, we are probably looking at a new dark age. Populism, the world around, will tear our system apart, as it very nearly has done in my country in the last four years and in various other countries in Europe. At the same time, if we provide abundance for all people, and more importantly, focus on well-being of all people, then we can, we can cut the legs out from under this populism and begin to get serious about how do we create an economy in service to life. So Steve, maybe that's enough to, uh, to kick off a conversation. Yeah, great opening lines, great, great thoughts. And yes, um, in fact, in, in my time, I, I rarely meet an optimistic environmentalist. Um, you're it. And, and, and it's encouraging and hopeful. Um, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to ask you, first off, you know, how is economics, in your opinion, lined up? against the objective you know what has changed and when did it change we've gone through at least in the united states uh, four rather relatively dark years with respect to the environment environmental protection um you know what what do we do now and and why are you feeling this optimism at this moment in part because of the economics when when you're swimming upstream against economics it's a tough slog when the economics are on your side you're coasting downstream with the current. The system that we have allowed to be created was what is generically called neoliberal economics, neoliberalism, was created by 36 men, yeah, they were all men, who gathered after World War II in a hotel outside of Montreux, Switzerland. Now, World War II, Europe is trashed. Much of the rest of the world is trashed. These guys did this with the best of intentions, but I think with some bad assumptions. So they believed that markets are perfect, 
<laughs> I'd love to see a perfect market. Maybe the drug trade, although the uh, drug enforcement is probably the world's best agricultural subsidy. The, they believe that people are greedy bastards. That's okay, though, they said, because in a perfect market, you against me will somehow aggregate to the greater good. No, it won't, and it hasn't. And so we have had this widening of inequality, which Thomas Piketty, author of Capital in the 21st Century, says is causative of economic collapse. The neolibs believe that personal individual liberty is the single most important policy aspect. And so they said governments are inherently bad. We need to drive for small government and unfettered markets. They got their members as advisors to every head of state on the planet, three of them as heads of state, many of them as central bankers, but they still remained a fairly wonkish group until in about 1970 in the United States, the US Chamber of Commerce asked a man named Lewis Powell to describe how business could re-legitimize itself. The, the 60s, sex, drugs, rock and roll, business was feeling fairly battered. Powell's memorandum, which you can go online and download, outlined 26 targets lower court judges, MBA programs, business roundtables, the media. He walked through, he laid out a strategy of how do you transform the economy? On the strength of that memo, uh, about five entities, uh, foundations, Olin, Coors, Scaife, Bradley, Grace Richardson, and the Koch brothers, put each of them something like $5 million for each of five years into creating and endowing Heritage, Hudson, Hoover, Heartland, American Enterprise, Cato, Judicial Crisis Network, all of the intellectual architecture which has given us the world that we live in today. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected in the United States, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, and this ideology became the global dominant economic ideology. You look at the statistics, up until 1980, all classes of people were coming up together. After 1980, only the 1% or the 0.01%. That's when the structural inequality began. The deregulation began, and so it, it the 08 collapse was fairly predictable. We now know this approach doesn't work. We also know the assumptions it's based on are wrong. It turns out humans are not greedy bastards. We actually care about each other. Go back to um, the archeology, span the, the genetics, the evolutionary biology in in Africa, when there weren't even humans, we were pre-humans. There are apparently a bunch of different tribes of pre-humans, almost all of which went extinct. The tribe that survived cared. We know this from the archaeology. They have found the bones of old toothless men. If you're old and toothless, taking care of you is a drag on the tribe. 
if you're in it for number one, if you're all that matters, you leave these people behind. They've found the bones of crippled people. Again, you would not keep them around if you're just in it for yourself. It turns out caring is not a flaw as the neolibs thought. It's who we are as humans. And so when you care, it's because it's in your DNA. Hmm. Their DNA is in you. That's what it means to be human. So, so the, the question for you, Hunter, isn't so much that the system is wrong, it's that the application of the system is wrong. Would you say that? I mean, can you say that capitalism still has its, its, its opportunities and its abilities to actually generate the results we're all hoping for? Or are you, are you advocating for a different approach altogether? As Winston Churchill uh, once said of democracy, it's the worst system except for all the rest. If you look at all of the various idea, economic ideologies, capitalism practiced properly is the only one that works. The, what we are practicing today, I think is better called cheater capitalism or um, crapitalism because we're being bad capitalists. We are liquidating human and natural capital to try to get more financial and manufactured capital, money and stuff. We believe we're succeeding when GDP goes up. What's GDP? It's a measure of the flow through the economy of money and stuff. So a divorcing cancer patient gets in a car wreck. She's definitely added to the GDP with lawyer fees and mechanics fees and doctor fees. Is she any better off? Clearly not. So what is it that we want more of and then let's unleash the power of entrepreneurialism to deliver it. So to me, the role of a good government is to set policy based on a, an honest conversation of all of the people, democracy, and then turn it over to the market to do the rowing. So the government steers, the market rows. It provides the motive power to deliver what it is that we collectively have decided we want to have more of. In order to do that, don't you need to re-script the consumer mentality? Don't you need to create a different demand process in order to shift what people want in life? I think what people want in life is pretty constant. And we know this because the science has been done. There's a brilliant TED talk by a guy named Nick Marks, N-I-C-M-A-R-K-S, where a project went around and asked people all around the world, what do you want? Number one, ha to be happy. Number two, to be healthy. Number three, to belong, to, to feel that I'm part of something bigger than myself. It wasn't until you got to number four that people thought, oh, more money would be nice, more stuff. People really want to be happy. So what is it that makes us happy? We have allowed the marketers to tell us that to be, to, to feel adequate, you have to buy my lotion, widget, big, fast car, inadequacy marketing. And it has turned us all into a world of rabid consumers. 
Are we happier? The science says no. Sometime around the 70s, wealth and happiness diverged. And there, certainly, if you're poor, more money and stuff will definitely make you better off, enhance your well-being, make you happier. But after a certain point, more stuff doesn't really add to your happiness. So I think we need a conversation about what do we want and then how do we best get it. And some of the better companies are doing this. Unilever's campaign around beauty, the Dove Total Beauty campaign, where they, they, they offered people a little patch, that you, people, women particularly, that you put on for a couple of weeks. And they asked them throughout this period, how do you feel about yourself? Oh, much better. I'm getting more beautiful. At the end, you want to know what's in the patch? Yeah. Nothing. And the campaign was really to say, you, just as you are, are beautiful. Mm -hmm. So where, where does this process begin, Hunter? Where, where does the work begin? Because we have the technologies. We have that crossover point, 2014, with solar. We've got the end of oil, you know, coming sooner or later is going to come. So all of these, these elements, are the lines are crossing. But, but there seems to be a reformatting that's required psychologically or socially. Where does that energy come from? Is it come from corporations, from societies, from communities? Which stakeholder group is going to start to make the difference, in your opinion? Yes. Yes, all the above, of course. Yeah. And we're seeing it from all of them. One of the lessons of the pandemic is that many people have realized I don't have to have as much stuff. I sure don't have to fly around as much. I really have enjoyed being at home and spending more time with my family. And so it is incumbent on companies to look at what are, what are we selling and how do we re-engineer, redesign what we're selling to deliver to people what they truly need and start cutting away what it is they don't need. And having this conversation with their customers. Uh, there's a great book by Jeff Jarvis, the uh, was he Wall Street Journal reporter, Business Week reporter, where he had bought a Dell computer and Dell had had this promise of, uh, we give you what you want. And he happened to get a lemon. And so he wrote to Dell and said, I bought a bad computer and they ignored him. Note to self, don't ignore journalists when they're annoyed with you. So he started writing blogs about this. Michael Dell finally had to call him up and apologize very annoyedly. It almost put Dell out of business. And what Jarvis says in a, in a book called What Would Google Do? Is what Google got right is the conversation. You need to be in a conversation with your customers. And this is what will enable you to know what it is they want, ensure that you're satisfying that, and co-design your product with them. So the best companies are doing this now, are, are having this active conversation with their customers and with their communities. 
Last question, and then I want to open it up to the members. But um, you spent some time in Asia. Uh, you've had some interesting interludes out here. Uh, what are your thoughts about the role, responsibility uh, of Asia in this evolution towards uh, a finer future? In many ways, Asia will deal with this first and I think best because many of the problems are front and center. Climate change left unchecked is melting the glaciers in the Himalaya. That waters 40% of people on Earth. Climate change this summer has brought torrential rains to China. The, the Mekong Delta is at risk. They're, they're just huge, uh, the fires in Australia, huge swaths of Asia that are on the front lines of climate change right now. And Asia also, in many ways, has the, the capacity to innovate, to try new things. In many ways, the United States is stuck. Emotionally, politically, intellectually, and so just as when renewable energy was faltering because of the high cost of refined silicon for the solar cells, the U.S. had this crazy idea of subsidizing a company called Solyndra that had a super high-tech answer. The Chinese said, if the problem is how do we get the silica, let's just subsidize the manufacturing of more silicon refineries, drop the price, took the market. So this kind of design innovation, China is now leading the world in autonomous vehicles, with the possible exception of Elon Musk, but I think China will surpass that. Uh, there are parts of Australia that are now 100% renewably powered. And so I, I think Asia has an incredibly bright future ahead of it if it takes these challenges seriously, if it invests in the best of the new technology, if it unleashes entrepreneurialism. And I'm, you know, having said I'm loving staying at home, I actually am looking forward to the day when I can come back to Asia. I love it there and I love what I learn when I'm there. What uh, might the environmental movement have done differently over the last 25 years to get a better response from corporates? Uh, they feel chided, I think is the word I would use. And, and I think this has been one of the things that's created a rift between them. What's your view? And, and what might you and others have done differently? There is a tendency in the environmental movement to attack the, the corporate world. And I think that's stupid. And this was Paul Hawkins' great genius in the book that you mentioned, Ecology of Commerce. He said, business is the only institution on the planet big enough, well enough managed to be able to solve the problems facing us. And it was in part that conversation and then a, a book that we wrote for uh, a German audience on the opportunities in energy efficiency that Paul called up and said, rats, you just wrote half of my next book. I said, let's write the other half. And that became natural capitalism, which agreed business is the only institution on the planet that can solve these problems. 
Paul and a group of us then worked with an industrialist named Ray Anderson, ran a company called Interface, to implement these ideas. And Ray's great line was, what's the business case for ending life on Earth? Business people live in the same world we do. And by attacking them, we, we take away the, the, player, the players capable of solving these problems. So I spend most of my time either teaching at an MBA program, teaching young business leaders, or working with business leaders. I actually spend very little time with who you might think of as my colleagues in the environmental movement. And when I'm with them, we tend to get into arguments. They seem to believe that either if we all hold hands and say, oh, a, a perfect world will miraculously appear, or if we have enough protest marches, the world will somehow change. No, it won't. Somebody has to invest in it. Somebody has to make it. So talking with people about how do you design a product better? How do you run a process so that it is minimum materials use minimum pollution. And why should a business person do this? Because it's better business. You've no doubt heard the phrase, the triple bottom line. Yeah, come on, how many of you keep three sets of books? Like none of you? What I use is an approach called the integrated bottom line. If I can show you that behaving responsibly to people and to planet will make you more money, now it gets baked into your business as a core part of how you're doing business. So if you're using fewer resources, you're cutting your cost. If you're doing fewer things that are dangerous, you're cutting your risks. You're cutting your insurance costs. You may be keeping your franchise to operate. You are attracting and retaining the best talent. Once you have that talent, if you treat them with dignity, respect, put them in good green buildings, you will get higher productivity. Up to Gallup Healthways says uh, 26% higher productivity, 21% higher profitability from an engaged workforce. How do you get an engaged workforce? Enable them to be implementing more sustainable practices as part of their day job. You better differentiate your product. You better manage your supply chain. Why did Walmart go green? It enables them to better manage their supply chain and it cut in half the number of people saying, I will never shop at a Walmart. It cut the cost of distrust. We've counted 13 different ways in which behaving more responsibly enhances your profitability. A man named Bob Willard who works with uh, what is it, IISP, uh, International Institute of uh, Sustainability Practitioners, has shown that seven of these aspects of an integrated bottom line will increase your profitability by 35%. And, you know, again, you look at the Unilever numbers, they, uh, they found that their purpose 
driven brands, 17 out of, I don't even know how many they have, 400 brands, were delivering half of the company's profitability. They were the fastest growing brands. And so they said to all their brands, each of you needs to find your authentic purpose. This was part of their sustainable living plan. And so I sat down with the senior management at Unilever and said, sustainability is great, but you need to become regenerative. They said, what's that? So I introduced them to John Fullerton, who's written this marvelous paper, Regenerative Capitalism. And at first they didn't get it. And then about a year ago, Unilever announced a commitment to becoming a regenerative company. This year, they were joined by General Mills, Cargill, Target, McDonald's, and Walmart. Oh, and Nestle just joined last week with pledges to become a regenerative company. Now, they have no idea what this means. That's okay. Figuring it out will drive their corporate innovation. And that's, that's really the genius of capitalism. It set a goal, what Jim Collins called a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, and go for it. That drives your innovation, cuts your cost, drives your profitability. That's capitalism at its best when it is not only worrying about money and stuff, but also human and natural capital. Put it all together and you have a good capitalist. So in your opinion, we have passed the point of no return in a good way. In other words, uh, this train has left the station, corporations are coming on board. Anyone who's not is going to miss the opportunity to what I'm hearing you say, innovate, change, develop, do, do new things that are based on a higher principled idea of capitalism. Would that be correct? Paul Pullman, the, who was the CEO of Unilever during this time, has a new book coming out in which he walks through, among other things, the, the story of Kraft Heinz 3G coming raiding. Unilever done such a good job of running up its profits that, of course, the raiders came round. And, of course, it took Paul all of about 24 hours to say, go away, go pound sand. The investors said, excuse us, this was an incredibly sweet opportunity. And Paul walked through what his commitment to sustainability had done to be responsible for driving that increase in profitability and said, these guys are raiders. Look at what they did with Kraft Heinz. And if you look now at what's happened in the couple of years since then, Kraft Heinz is suffering. And as a result, just in the last couple of weeks, came out with an announcement of it's reinstituting its sustainability program. Yeah, we, we made a mistake. We're coming back, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think it is inevitable. We're, we're hearing now in the United States the so-called progressive movement bashing President-elect Biden don't appoint any corporate people. And I think that's a mistake. I think you want to take the, the brightest minds out of the corporate world and at, invite them to do some government service for a little while and take some of the brightest government people, bring them into companies 
similarly involve the brightest people from the NGO sector in both of those. We live in a world now in which the of the 100 largest economic entities, well over half aren't countries anymore, they're companies. And in an internet empowered world, the number of us in this conversation can delegitimize any company in any country. So who's in charge here? In that sense, we need a new theory of governance. And again, I think the best role of a government is to set policy and then get out of the way and let the corporate sector implement it. But policy is best set in conversation with both the NGO sector and the corporate sector. There was a very interesting experiment in the Boston area in the United States many years ago where a local environmental protection agency official said all of this environmental regulation is being handed down from Washington. Washington doesn't know what our problems are. What if we gather corporate leaders, NGO leaders, and my staff, and we identify what are our challenges, what would be the best regulation to be dealing with these challenges, and cooperatively put this regulation in place. And there's a book called Backyard Environmentalism that tracked this experiment. It turned out to be wildly successful. When business had a hand in building the regulations and the NGO sector was sitting at the table so that it, it wasn't uh, capture of the regulatory process, they made very smart rules and regulations. Similarly, when Walmart, when Lee Scott announced his commitment to sustainability, he invited in the best of the NGO sector. So groups like Natural Resources Defense Council, Environmental Defense Fund, set up offices in Bentonville, Arkansas, to be working with Walmart. So, so these were successful engagements, but yet they didn't go far enough, or they were good policy ideas that never won legislative support? Because in not all cases did it yield, right? It, do, it has not yielded in all cases, although the Walmart experiment is still very much underway. Doug McMillan's announcing, and I gather Paul Hawken wrote his speech, uh, that Walmart is now committing to be a regenerative company is evidence that Walmart is continuing on. The, what happened, I think, was, again, this rise of neoliberalism Government's the problem, get it out of the way. And the delegitimization of any conversation around what is sensible policy and how do we, how do we implement it. So I've, of late, I've been watching China. In, I believe, 2012, China announced that it was going to be the ecological civilization. Again, I think they have no earthly idea what that means. But I think they're also quite serious about figuring it out because the air pollution in China and indeed in India is killing millions of people a year and it's delegitimizing the party. The opportunities for China in 
regenerative economics are incredibly exciting. China has the opportunity, for example, to begin implementing more regenerative agriculture, which is more productive, so it would better feed the Chinese people. China has been going around the world buying up other people's farmland, as has Saudi, as have several other countries. I think they'd be much better served by rethinking how they do agriculture in China and building healthy soils. I put in the chat box uh, a mention of Gabe Brown's video, Keys to Building a Healthy Soil. Gabe was a uh, North Dakota corn soybean commodity farmer who was going broke. And because he was going broke, he said, I'll do anything. He first implemented no-till. He stopped breaking the soil. That cut his cost. He then got rid of all of his chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, because he started planting cover crops, deep-rooted crops that took nutrients from the air and put them into the soil. But then he had all these cover crops, so he turned cows out to eat the cover crops so he could drill seed his corn and soybeans. Gabe is now wildly profitable. He has increased soil carbon year on year on year, going from initially somewhat under 2% soil organic matter to now over 11% soil organic matter. Every 1% soil organic matter is 5 to 10 tons of carbon per acre. So again, enormous capacity to take carbon out of the air, put it in the soil. And in the soil, carbon is the basis of productivity and profitability on the farm. Yeah, there's a wonderful Netflix film uh, documentary, Kiss the ground, is that what it is, or kiss the soil? Which is it? Kiss the ground, which uh, pretty much does a great job in discussing that and just how possible it is. Uh, it's, and it's portrays not... Gabe, and portrays ah, Alan okay. Savory, right. who is okay. the founder of much of this movement. What we, what we know, again, from the science, and the best work on this is a man named Dr. Paul Lawrence at Harvard, a man named Dr. Michael Pearson at Fordham, who have walked through human drives. And they say we have four drives. There's a drive to acquire. And once you have stuff, there's a drive to defend. But that's only half of what makes us human. There is then the drive to bond and the drive to create meaning. And you cannot be happy without all four of those drives being satisfied. And this is why people love Facebook, despite uh, Mark Zuckerberg being a bit of a problem. And it's, it's why we tell stories. Uh, the book um, Sapiens by Yuval Harari pointed out, he argues this big brain of ours came about because early pre-humans told stories. We needed an ever-growing brain to be able to create, concoct these stories. Myths, religions, meaning. You, you take meaning out of a person's life, they're miserable. 
mm-hmm. and put meaning in and they'll tackle anything. Hunter, we thank you so much for joining us, uh, sharing your thoughts, uh, doing the good work. Uh, we hope we can stay connected. And, uh, and please, um, uh, the, the, her books are brilliant. So please do uh, get a hold of them if you can, and we'll make that happen if, if we can help. So thank you to you. Thank you all so much for caring. That was my conversation with Hunter Lovins, environmentalist and champion of sustainable development. Time magazine has referred to her as a millennium hero for the planet, and Newsweek called her a green business icon. Her books speak to the potential alignment of commerce and conservation, and perhaps most importantly, she carries a message of hope. Decades of working in the crosshairs of business and environment have left her with an uncanny sense of what might be possible if only we line up to address what she refers to as the triple crisis of climate, biodiversity, and structural inequality. Hunter is a rarity in that she has hope for the planet and humanity. Yet to realize our potential, she says, we must reach past short-term concerns and aspire to long-term thinking. Technology, if harnessed appropriately, could prove our greatest single advantage, but only if governments set policy, leaving the market to, as she puts it, do the rowing. There is no ready alternative. Companies will either step up and do the right thing, or we will unwittingly invite the coming of a new dark age. All it takes is for corporations to engage in best practice and then pursue what she refers to as an integrated bottom line. In so doing, the commercial objective shifts from growth to regeneration. Achieve that, she says, and the entire foundation of our economy and society starts to shift. Even better, it finds what's best in capitalism, and that's a journey worthy of the effort. That's a wrap for this week's episode. If you like what you hear, share our program with friends and colleagues. Subscribing to Inside Asia is free and available wherever you search and listen to podcasts. We're entering our third consecutive season with more than 160 episodes available. Listen to experts from around the region discuss the big trends and essential topics that highlight Asia's vast potential. In the meantime, if you're a business leader based in Asia and want to know more about the Asia Corporate Leadership Council, let us know. We're on a mission to help corporations become a force for good in the world. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.